Welcome back, folks. If we could uh, move right along. We've, the mayor's on a tight schedule, and we want to make sure we give time for, uh, for his remarks and for your questions. Uh, I'm really thrilled today. Uh, we've had a lot of discussion. We've talked a lot over the last uh, week uh, with a lot of political leaders in California. But I'm really pleased with tonight that with today that we have Mayor Eric Garcetti with us. He's the 42nd and current mayor of Los Angeles. Uh, he's served there since 2013. Uh, and he is someone who has dealt firsthand uh, in this city with issues ranging from homelessness and other types of poverty to certainly racial disparities, all the issues we've been talking about over the last uh, few weeks. Uh, before mayor, he was president of the LA City Council. And before serving as a city councilor, he was in academia. So, uh, so we get a variety of perspectives here. Uh, today. Uh, and unfortunately, he's not going to be mayor forever, I, uh, I understand, uh, that the Biden administration has announced its intention to, uh, to nominate him as ambassador to India. Uh, of course, the way Congress moves these days, it, it could be still be mayor forever before that happens. So we'll, we'll have to see what happens. At any rate, we're, we're thrilled to have you here today. So Mayor Garcetti. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it very much, Mike, and I hope everybody's been having a good uh, day here. I'm sorry I missed uh, Will and Henry and Michael. Um, really looks like a great panel that was here, and I want to thank my team, my staff that's here. Thank you for the invitation, and it was an easy yes when you see the topic. And while it's a Saturday and a day that the Dodgers are playing, um, and I'm hoping that they can have another miracle this year, uh, it's also a time for me when I have had a giant run-on sentence of 20 years of local government service, where we rarely get to pause with a comma, let alone finish a thought with a period, um, or celebrate maybe even with an exclamation point, or ask a question with a question mark. And yet I think it is so important for those of us, when I was in academia, I was joking with my team on the way here, I used to always have all the time in the world to think, but very little power to change the world. Now I have a tremendous amount of power to change the world and very little time to think. And it should be almost a requirement of those that we elect to take time to really do that reflective work uh, instead of the uh, reflexive work uh, that seems to be permeating how we uh, do much of our public policy based on what people say should be your ideology rather than true uh, thought. And so this is a moment for us, and certainly it's been a moment for me as I'm at an inflection point in my career, to really look back on those things that have moved forward, um, I think the values that we all hold together, which is to have a more equal and fair society. So let me say a few things on that about the Los Angeles um, experiment, my own perspective, and then I look forward to our questions and conversation. Um, simply put, America is addicted to poverty. You know, this year when I gave my State of the City address, and I usually have incredibly great writers and a team that, that helps me think through, I actually wrote that myself, and it res resonated that you know, we're addicted to poverty. We're addicted to poverty in so many ways, and it costs us literally tens, if not hundreds of billions a dollar a year in lost opportunity, in incarceration costs, in missed moments, in unrealized dreams. We're addicted to poverty, and I think that's a starting point for us all to admit what we need to build from and build away from. And if this last year laid out anything, some bare truths, it really shined a light on not only the inequality that exists, but the old way of doing things and how broken that was. Everything from land use to the way that we trust or don't trust people to spend their own money. 
And so today, you know, Cato's interesting because accepting the inv invitation to come to a, a think tank that's been known for its libertarian thought, to me, you know, reading the report, you know, half I fundamentally agreed with and half I fundamentally disagreed with. But that's a good place for us in America instead of usually you're supposed to disagree with 100% of a report or agree with 100% of a report. And to kind of stir that up and to see where we have those places, uh, whatever label you want to put on yourself. And mayors only put really one label on ourselves, mayors. And I'll never forget being in uh, Boston a few years ago for the US Conference of Mayors. I host um, kind of the big city mayors for an off the record um, dinner whenever we get together. And I sat the mayor of Miami next to the mayor of Cincinnati. Two of them had a wonderful conversation about climate change, about economic development. And the mayor from Miami said to the mayor of Cincinnati, so you're a Republican, huh? And the mayor of Cincinnati said, no, actually, I'm, I'm a Democrat. But you're a Democrat, right? And the mayor of Miami said, no, actually, I'm a Republican. And you couldn't do that at the national level, because you'd be laying out your uh, you know, opinions on abortion. You'd be putting forward whether you support or don't support administration based on who's there, not based on what they're doing. But at the local level, we don't have that luxury. This is a city that raised the minimum wage, but also cut our city's business tax in the same year. A city that has invested in reducing our emissions, but reduced unemployment as a result. And so when we look at our addiction to poverty, I think we have to get down to a few principles that I will just kind of spark. I'm going to kind of divert from my uh, speech here. I think we need less ideology when it comes to solutions around poverty. I think we need more creativity. I think we need more trust of individuals. And we need less kind of paternalism. So I think that resonates in this room. And I do think that there's areas where some of us may depart together. I think it requires resources. I'm not a person who is necessarily a fan of minimalist government. But we do need, certainly at the local level, I've seen what friction can do to slow down human creativity. And when we find more frictionless government, what it can do to spur that. Take just outdoor dining. We're right now indoors. I know it rained a little, but we're in the city with probably the best weather in the world. And yet we have less outdoor dining in Los Angeles than cold places in Scandinavia. But in the midst of a pandemic, like many cities, when we realized restaurants were uh, going to be challenged with going out of business, we figured out a way to somehow allow permitting for outdoor dining. And that wasn't just something temporary. We're now making that permanent. And trust me, with five or six different departments that could look at different things from accessibility to um, some of the safety issues, the public health issues, you could absolutely find a reason to shut down every single one of them. But if the incentive is not to enforce laws and get to know, but if the incentive and the culture of managers, and I've tried to lead this way as the city CEO, figure out a way to get to yes, don't cut corners, don't make people unsafe, but get to yes, maybe we can see less friction creating more entrepreneurialism, more happiness too. Let's not just make it in terms of an economy. People love dining outdoors right now. And when I walked in little Tokyo afterwards and talked to the restaurants, they said, this literally saved me. And guess what? We're doing better business now than before because people walk by people with food. They can see it outdoors. And they're like, that looks really good. It makes them happy to stop and actually have it rather than looking at a menu or even the, the plastic food in little Tokyo that's sometimes modeled in the windows. Um, the second example of this, too, is the way that we're looking at aid in moments of deep suffering. Now, this past year, we had the deepest tranche we've ever experienced in terms of our economic downturn. And here in Los Angeles, we faced the deepest of the deepest tranches. And we went into uh, that downturn and tried to figure out how can we assist people. 
And so I started, in 97 addresses I did uh, live on all of our primetime channels. I got as sick of my voice as I'm sure most of you here in LA did. But I was trying to steer people through the chaos of, of COVID to explain the actions we were taking, the health studies as they came in. But we also were appealing to people to help their neighbors. We saw incredible, incredible results. It was in a moment we were told to be apart from each other that in many ways we came closer to one another than we ever have before. Neighbors actually knocked on doors in Los Angeles to learn who their neighbors were. And for years, they had no idea who was living there. They found out who the seniors were, brought groceries to them, started coming together with collectives inside you know, neighborhoods like the Hollywood neighborhood, uh, Central Hollywood Neighborhood Council that now is continuing this post-pandemic to get all the food uh, that is excess food out of grocery stores and other places and give those to low-income folks, something that was indigenous, something that was organic, something that was local. But a lot of people then also donated uh, to the Mayor's Fund, which is something that we have here, a nonprofit, to allow folks to be able to, to uh, give to important causes, in this case, whether people could pay their bills. And you know what we did with that money is we put them on a MasterCard in a partnership, cash cards that just told people you can spend it on whatever you need. In other words, it wasn't the typical thing where government collects the money and says, we've got the perfect way to spend it. Let us tell you the only places you can do that. But then we tracked where people spent it. And contrary to a lot of the prejudice against poor people, it said, oh, they're going to be spending this on video games or on excessive things, buying a new car, whatever. We could track how much went to food, to rent, to the basics. People are smart with their decisions, which is why I'm a big fan of a guaranteed basic income. And this coming month, we will launch the nation's largest pilot program for a guaranteed basic income. With over 2,000 families, we estimate about 10,000 people will be affected by this directly with a year of $1,000 a month cash payments to be able to see as people both on the left and the right have talked about what if we actually allocated resources, maybe more of them, but with more freedom too, in a shorter period of time and not forever. In other words, to give people the independence to break the back of the poverty uh, that avails them, to be able to end it once and for all. So we're not looking at a 20 or 30 year social program, but could a two or three year program and the results that came out of Stockton when this started with my friend, the, the former mayor up there, Michael Tubbs, it was amazing. You saw folks that were able to finally go to the doctor to do that preventive check and not spend so much on our collective insurance because they waited three years because they didn't have the money to do that. They were able to actually have a better job interview because they could take that money. They could see their kids after school instead of having a second job and help them with the homework because better outcomes aren't just about uh, the schools that we have and the choices that we have, but the parents being there and being able to assist. So poverty costs us all so much. And here in Los Angeles, we've kind of tried to look at a justice budget. That's what I termed this year's budget. And really put key investments where it was necessary. And this is where some of us may divert, but in human and physical infrastructure, we're building out a public transit system here in the car capital of America where we used to have the best public transit system with 15 new rail lines and, and rapid transit lines. It's never been done in the history of the United States. That was something that the voters voted for in a state where, as you know, you need a two-thirds vote by over 72%. And it never sunsets. Usually in politics, you have to say, I swear this tax is only going to be around for like five or 10 years. People willfully tax themselves to say, enough is enough. And for my kids and grandkids, I don't want them having to come back. We know that transportation is a public good. We want to pay for it, and it's good. But we're making sure that the people building it are local. We're making sure that the way we build it, again, is not prescriptive. We're not saying, we've engineered this. Here's the plans and bid on it. We're going to the private sector with public-private partnerships and saying, we want to get from point A to point B. How would you do it? And new technologies and new ways of building things are coming out of that creativity. 
So poverty really requires, or ending poverty, a systematic way of looking at everything from our criminal justice system to the way that we house people. And I, I will say this, one last thing, because I want to leave time for, for the discussion. The most exciting part of this report, and where I agree the most, and where I think California's dream is being held back, and the governor now uses this language. Um, he credits me, like any good politician, you get credit for the first two times you steal someone's rhetoric until it becomes your own, and I've done the same. Um, and he, with my blessing. But you know, I noticed that there is no other state in which you can insert like the American dream besides California, the California dream. It's not that people in Kansas or Florida or New Hampshire don't also dream, but you never hear about the New Hampshire dream, the Florida dream, the Colorado dream. But the, the California dream is something real for those of us who live here and for those of us who know California. And it was predicated on a few things, a couple which won't go away, but a couple which have. Good weather, amazing kind of geography, those, those will stay here. But then it was good schools, cheap housing, good jobs. We still have a lot of good jobs. And in fact, if you read the Bloomberg uh, business report that came out this past week, Los Angeles is outpacing every city in the country in recovering out of the pandemic, both in unemployment and also in the valuation of our publicly traded companies. So both from the, the management side and the labor side, we're outpacing everybody. We're outpacing all the Texan cities that always say California stinks. We're outpacing New York, Chicago, Denver. We're number one, which, would, which should surprise you. And I always love Bloomberg when they come in, because I never know what they're going to say, and they say, here's the data. But we were also outpacing the country just before the pandemic, too. So there's some good fundamentals here. But also, we have to make sure that that housing piece which has been lost now, and lost really to nostalgia, I would say, well-intentioned nostalgia. People who live in a single-family neighborhood, like I grew up in the San Fernando Valley, don't want to give up on that version of the California dream. And there's plenty of places where it's going to exist you know, very alive and well throughout California. We're not going to look like downtown Los Angeles throughout the state. But if we want to get real about our children living here, unless you happen to be a very wealthy family or you give them your house, about middle-level managers not putting the pressure on the CEOs who do move companies from California, because it's not about just the taxes that are here. It really is more about the people who say, wait, I can buy this much more in another state. I got to live in a space that small here. We need to build the housing that will allow the California dream to prosper again. In fact, I think it's part of what will get our public schools improved as well. And with the jobs and the weather and the geography, it is the most key point. So, I wouldn't frame it exactly the same words. I've said ending CEQA abuse, because I think it really is, you know, everybody wants good environmental laws that are really about the environment. Nobody wants polluted water and air. But using something called environment to abuse the system for getting land use entitlements are two completely different things that have been blurred together. And I've witnessed that. It's here that I've signed legislation or pushed legislation in, and thank you for in the report mentioning Los Angeles, to basically make ministerial what used to be something that had to go through a, a process of approvals, of meetings. Let's all say collectively what we want in terms of our goals, and then let's make it easy for those willing to put the capital forward to build it to make that happen. So here in Los Angeles, any homeless or affordable housing goes straight through. Accessory dwelling units, the artists formerly known as granny flats, are now 25% of all the housing units built in Los Angeles. And when I started as mayor eight years ago, it was two or 3%. And we did that not only by allowing that to happen more quickly, we worked with architects and engineers to model ones that now you can step up to our, our uh, plan check uh, counter 
pick one of the 12 that are already approved and say, I want to build that one, they give you the stamp right there. Using transit-oriented corridors, where instead of looking to subsidize affordable housing, which I do believe in and which is an important part of the formula, we've done that here with uh, Measure HHH, which is building 11,000 units of housing for formerly homeless Angelinos. We also used market forces by just upzoning, and it was something on a ballot a measure that allowed the mayor and our planning um, commission, without having to go to our legislative body, the city council, who I otherwise love but was happy to bypass in this case, because they get stuck in some of those local politics with the loudest voices who say they represent the neighborhood but don't always represent the neighborhood, to be able to single-handedly upzone along transit corridors as high as I wanted. And my planning staff gave me the kind of baby bear, mama bear, papa bear versions, and I said, papa bear isn't big enough for me, and I went further. But in exchange for getting more height, essentially selling our collective right of way, we said, you can do that if you build low income, very low income, or extremely low income housing. And guess what? The lower you go, the higher you get to go up. And so for the first time, we're building more through the market forces without any subsidy of the affordable housing along these transit lines than what we could subsidize with our collective sandwich of state, federal, and local programs. So this really does require us to be non-ideological. It requires us, I think, to go all in. And I was, uh, my council opposed it, but I did not sign their opposition to, and in fact picked up the phone and very publicly said, I was in favor of SB9 and SB10, which for those of you who are uninitiated, will cut single family home properties in half and then allow you to do two units instead of one on each. So essentially turning a single family home lot into a four family home and when people said, aren't you going to destroy Los Angeles with that? I said, absolutely not. If you've walked as I have, and when I was a council member, I represented the densest district in LA, and every month I'd go door to door, people would always be surprised. They'd think I was asking for their vote or trying to convert them to something. And I said, no, I'm here just to listen to you. You would see four families already living in that one family house that you think is so beautifully preserved. One was living in the garage. Three families were in different parts of cutting up the same house. There was no parking on the street. So I get people's nimbyism sometimes. It's like, it's bad enough right now, you're going to add more? But it's precisely because we haven't built our way out of it that it is so bad. The RENA, which is the Regional Housing Needs Assessment, and I'll truly end with this to, to go to the conversation. Well, the most revolutionary thing I think I've done, there's the Olympics, there's the 15 rail lines, there's LAX being redone, there's the minimum wage, free community college, free transit, all these things I'm incredibly proud of getting to 100% renewable power before anybody else in the country, the big city. But the one thing I'm proudest of that will make no headlines is that here at the Southern California Association of Governments, SCAG as it's known, which brings together the six counties of Southern California besides San Diego County, from Imperial all the way up to Ventura, has to, under state and federal requirements, put together arena, uh, has to answer what our regional housing needs assessment is. And as the report showed, the last time this was done, Cities could just say how much housing they wanted. So Beverly Hills, which has done a fabulous job of adding jobs and office space and other things, said, we just need three housing units this decade, the last decade, three. Whereas in Imperial uh, Valley, um, I think it was 10,000 or something like that, where there's very few jobs and companies aren't going to be moving. You have what I call barnacle cities that allow the big cities to try to build the most but then don't, you know, they, they live off of that whale, getting the benefit of the taxes, getting the benefit of the workers who come in and spend money in their city, but then can't live there. Burbank added also thousands of jobs and had a few hundred new 
housing units in the last decade. So when we came to SCAG this year to do it, we in Los Angeles had an allocation the past decade of 88,000 units, and we surpassed it while I was mayor. I was very proud. Went from about 8,000 housing units a year to 22,000 just two years ago, so nearly tripled the number of housing units that are being produced. But we pushed together with folks in the Inland Empire and elsewhere, some cities and some counties that were saying, no, not in my backyard, in Orange County and other places, to say, we all have to embrace this together. And we passed the boldest, biggest goal, which will be near to impossible to get to, but we've got to make sure our reach at least exceeds our grasp if we're ever going to hold that. And it's 400 and, what is it, 85,000, 450,000 units is what we now have to build in the next decade. 88,000 to 450, so more than a five-fold increase. But it's an intellectually honest answer for the first time. If you want housing to be more affordable, we need to build that. And if you need to build that, you have to make it easier to build that. And if you want to make it easier to build that, you have to change zoning. And George Skelton wrote a piece on this in the LA Times, and he said, you know, on one hand, I don't want my neighborhood to change. This is terrible. And on the other hand, I want my children to still live here. And that probably captures why, in the end, this is a good thing that the governor signed it. So let's be brave in ending our addiction to poverty. Let's be bold. Let's be creative. Let's be non-ideological. And let's learn the lessons from cities that are taking those risks and lift up the leaders. I'm not saying this for myself because I'll, I'll be gone. But please support those leaders with the courage to do these things. Because at the neighborhood level, the incentives usually run the other way. And I think together we can make this decade of unprecedented infrastructure investment, trust of giving people the money to spend it out of poverty themselves, and changing the rules on the ground. Maybe this can be the decade where we finally re reverse this addiction to poverty. Thank you all so much. Well, thank you very much. And thank you for making the hard decisions sometimes and tackling some hard issues on that. And thank you for coming here. And uh, part of what we've been doing here the last few days is having some discussion. And it's not necessarily to agree on everything. Uh, so let's, uh, let's see if the audience has any questions. Uh, please feel free. If you, if you don't, I have some. But uh, anybody here want to I'm all that's uh, standing between you and freedom, I know. But you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, thank you, Mr. Mayor, for everything that you've been doing in the city of Los Angeles and around the world being a leader in the C40 cities. Thank you. I have two asks. I don't have questions. Sure. The first ask, Executive Directive 25, the Green New Deal. Yes. As you are leaving office, could you really clarify what is aspirational and what is a mandate? In the two years I've been working at the Board of Public Works for the Board of Commissioners, there has been so many discussions. Yeah. In particular, I'm focusing on Chapter 9, the Food Systems mm -hmm. Chapter. What is, now that we've gotten through or we're in pervasive COVID, as I call it, what are the things that you would like to see for the pro tem or the new mayor to actually want to achieve? The second thing, the issues of food, yeah. I think are going to become more problematic before a major earthquake. They're going to be impacted by fire, drought, flood, and, of course, labor. I would really urge you to think about having a food security advisor. Mm -hmm. I believe that food security is national security, mm -hmm. and I think that making sure that people, after they get their homes or after they get their UBI, yep. that they can't afford food. And some of the things that Henry Gascom talked about earlier with poverty clearly impact whether or not people can afford a bag of groceries and what that bag of groceries will look like 
or if some of the legislation like Senate Bill 1383, mm -hmm. Assembly Bill 1009 will make certain that people can get food closer than the Central Valley. Yep. Absolutely. Thank you for both of those. I'm happy to respond, but you, said you, you made his request, so I'll, I'll respect that and go to another one. But no, no food security is, um, in the Green New Deal, I'll just say briefly, not aspirational. Uh, it is something, and the entire Green New Deal that we have for Los Angeles is all about markers and accountability, one, two, five-year, and ten-year markers, the ones that people could hold me accountable because you often make promises for the next guy or gal, um, and ones that I could also give the baton to. So we, I think we uh, made some pretty bold moves about a decade ago on food security in Los Angeles. Um, I worked on that with my predecessor, Antonio Villaraigosa, and I think you're right. Um, in integrating that also into the emergency experience that we had this past year is pretty critical, too. So points both well taken, and I'll follow up. Thank you. Let, let me ask you a question. Yeah. One of the things I've encountered a lot in talking to folks throughout California is the push-pull between local control and state control. Yep. And a lot of people think things can only be done in the state government, have to preempt all the local officials. Local officials always push back and mm -hmm. say, you know, no, we, you know, we want to run our own shop here. Yep. What can local officials do uniquely to fight poverty that maybe, you know, that, that is sort of unique to your abilities here, the fact that you are closer to the people? Well, there's no question the land use and zoning pieces, we can, but I also don't mind it when the state overrules that <laughs> local control because I do think that. A city like Los Angeles can do better, or parts of Los Angeles very well, but other neighborhoods, still NIMBYism is alive and well, and neighboring cities, it thrives, or even neighboring counties. I mean, we have to look at Los Angeles as a region. It's a 19 million person region now. Um, it is the third largest metropolitan economy in the world. So Tokyo is the biggest city economy in the world, and we're tied with New York. We're probably going to pass New York in the next five to 10 years. So think about that. Of every metro area in the world, LA is either number two or number three. So uh, there's tremendous resources, but I like when folks come in to be, blend those resources a little better because I always joke, we're not a liberal uh, state, we're actually a libertarian one. And the history of Los Angeles is a very libertarian history. It's build me freeways, get me water, and then stay out of my life. <laughs> I think for libertarians, the challenge now is that's not enough. We have to figure out a way of some of those basic, what are the new public goods that we need to commoditize instead of, um, you know, you look at places like Hong Kong and Singapore, they're hyper-capitalist. But they realize housing is not a speculative event. It is a commodity. And public housing isn't just something for the poor. It's something for the middle class. And it would not have gotten built without smart government policies together with the private sector, allowing the middle class to, to build equity, yes, but also to have a decent place to live in both of those cities. Um, so I think cities and land use housing uh, have the biggest tools. We'll never be able to afford kind of the basic income things beyond the pilot phase, which is why we're doing them to show you know, the federal government what the impact could be there, um, you know, something like reparations, if we're looking at truly dealing with the, the legacy of racism. We started a, a reparation study, and I have a reparations group of about uh, now a dozen cities around the country. And reparations can mean very different things. It could mean the beach that was taken here in Southern California from a black family. It could mean the returning of the land that we just did at Alvera Street to Native tribes who are not yet recognized federally, so we had to do it through a nonprofit. Uh, but to say, look, the Tongvi, this is their land. Let's figure out a way to give some of that back and build equity, not just with casinos. So um, I think that the last thing I would say, the state level can be very effective and the federal level at something they still stink at, which is trusting us to be the laboratory, rewarding it with accountability, and giving us the freedom to experiment. They usually do the opposite. They prescribe or they overly 
check, and I get that right. I mean, I, I, get, I get why. You have an unemployment program that rushes out quickly, and half of it goes to fraud, right? And then there's a housing assistance program there, and people are saying, why is it taking so long to get that to people? So there's always this tension between you can get stuff out really quickly, but it might have abuse. Um, so you want to have a lot of oversight, but then you put so much oversight, nobody has any incentive to experiment. Yeah. So I really, we do this informally as mayors. I have a, a tech string with 20 mayors in the top 20 cities. We're always asking, what are you doing on uh, rethinking public safety? And so one city's saying, well, you know, sometimes maybe a badge doesn't need to respond to a mental health emergency. So this month we're rolling that out 24 7, 911, the biggest city in America. Not because we won't have police if we need them. And I certainly am not a defund the police person. But let's be smart about our public safety funding. We've done this with gang intervention. Um, so we have former gang members doing intervention and police officers where we need them. Where they work together, it's a 40% bigger drop in crime, and it's cheaper. Uh, I, know, I know you have to go, but let me ask one I'm last. Happy to go. I'm happy to go a couple minutes. Oh, OK, good. Anybody else have any questions here before I follow up? Yeah, go right ahead. First, first of all, I want to say thank you for being here, Mr. Absolutely. Mayor. And uh, as a current graduate student at the University of California Riverside School yeah. of Public Policy, um, we're currently focusing our research on mm -hmm. decreasing the incarceration rate of youth in the state of California. So given that over 25,000 youth were incarcerated in the year of 2020, and we've noticed that primarily police are targeting communities of color, um, what do you hope the next mayor is going to do to close that gap in the communities of color in uh, yeah. the city of LA? Well, I hope they build on what we're doing, which is diversion, 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 diversion. And we've, we've had as much as 80% diversion in some of our police divisions by just finding the right partners who come from the county. This is where things get complicated. We don't have these departments um, you know, for the criminal justice system. Once you, after you get past the police part, it goes into a different level of government, usually the county or the state. But we've worked well with nonprofit partners who get contracted by the county to do youth diversion instead of youth incarceration. It's been a big um, cause of mine for decades, um, you know, reducing the criminal penalties for youth, um, investing in. I got to say, whether it's youth or whether it's adults, we've done a lot of really good criminal justice reforms in California, but I think we've still done them quite poorly. And the promise of all the savings of those dollars that we're going to build an infrastructure to reintegrate people or to divert, I don't see it. I don't feel it. And I know there's plenty of good groups that have gone up to historic highs for those groups in terms of their budgets. But you ask the average person coming out of prison, is there really a plan? Is there really infrastructure to catch them? In Los Angeles, I hope that the next mayor expands on our uh, local hire initiative, which says we'll put our money where our mouth is. We'll actually hire you in the city of LA. So fully two-thirds of our new hires in a whole host of different departments were either formerly incarcerated, formerly homeless, uh, both come out of abusive relationships, survivors of, of sexual domestic violence. So, and they're the best workers, by the way. They're the hungriest for a shot. I was walking in Hollywood with uh, folks from Circle, which is a new homeless outreach program that we're launching citywide. And I was just talking to the residents that live on the streets there. And, you know, Met a guy from Indiana, where my wife's from. We're talking about you know, the geography of Indianapolis. He served in the Navy like I did. You, know, you can find the common points very quickly with folks. I'm like, how'd you get here? And it's the same story with each one of them. You know, they got out of jail, or they got out of the, you know, PTSD, got out of the, the war, uh, got out of foster care. Yeah, addiction, mental health also crosses over that. Something traumatic. I met a guy from the South who 
built a, a building company using bamboo fiber um, as a building material who was on Wall Street for 10 years, and he's living in a tent now. Uh, can't wait to start his next business. <laughs> but we don't really, I think we've sold a bill of goods to Californians that that money was actually going to go into something. Or maybe it has, but it's not enough. Maybe it actually requires more money up front to do real good rehabilitation and reentry programs. But I'll, I'll tell you, you know, we know the uh, recidivism rate is about two-thirds for people coming out of prison. Uh, working with Caltrans, giving people a permanent job with Caltrans, um, with benefits, healthcare, we've had a 2% recidivism rate uh, six years after we started this program with a few hundred returning Californians. Like, no-brainers, right? So I would hope that the next mayor will continue to hire, will continue to divert, and we'll continue to invest and expand our prevention and intervention programs, which are a national model now, uh, but still could cover two or three times more territory in the city. Thanks for your work, too. Anybody else? Any last, last question before the mayor has to go? Don't sure. ask me about the Dodgers. I don't know. <laughs> but I can pray for it. Yeah. I was on Camp Pendleton at a training course, and one of the Marines basically said that he shot someone in San Bernardino County, and what kicked in first was his knowledge of lethal force coming from the Marine Corps training. The men and women who serve in blue, if they have served in green, I think it's important to not acknowledge their service, yeah. but also realize who we're hiring. Mm -hmm. Many young men and women, their first use of lethal force in Iraq or Afghanistan influences how they patrol here. Some men and women are still patrolling Al-Anbar. Some men and women are still patrolling Helmand Province. And it's very critical to look at how they deal with lethal force and how they deal with the individuals which they are sworn to protect and serve. And um, I had a friend who's tried to work for ICE, part of the training program. They asked him, what would you do with someone with a knife? He said, take it away. They said, that's the wrong answer. The answer was, pull out your gun and drop it. Mm -hmm. He says, I'm a Marine. I only point at things that I shoot. I only point my gun at things mm -hmm. I intend to kill. Right. So I think that this process of us taking these young men and women and putting them in blue and understanding where they've come from in green, the green side, is very critical to how we police our cities and how we sustain public safety and how we make them interactive with, with our communities, wherever they are, not thinking that they're targeting yeah. BIPOC or whatever, whatever you want to call it, but really t taking a look at the men and women who want to serve. You know, I, I, I've uh, witnessed some of our police officers with the best emotional intelligence also come out of military service. I think you bring up a, a wider issue, which may not come from military service. It can come from the street, too. It can come from abusive households, too, is the mental health of our public safety officers. We put... You know, there's a lot of accountability we demand and should demand of our of our the culture inside our departments and the people who serve inside them. But we also, I, I, if there's been one uh, thing that I've noticed sadly, because there's a lot of young people who are now uh, in our force in LAPD. It's a very young force that have come in in recent years, the new LAPD, et cetera. But one of the fundamental experiences they had was this past year in which kind of everybody dehumanized the police too. And don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm as strict on accountability as anybody. People should... Get criminal or, and or um, departmental justice if they break rules and break the law. Um, but, you know, you had folks who were 25 who were upset about outrage about what we all saw in Minneapolis taking to the streets and, and voicing that. And you had 25-year-olds right there on the other side in uniform hearing 
all cops are bastards and things like that. And if we don't take care of the mental health, by the way, on both sides, there's a lot of people who lost their heads this past year. All of us, I think, have been in a place where we need mental health check-ins, really, I mean, I, with no shame or anything. I mean, it was just a traumatic year for everybody. That's really important for somebody who has a gun. So I take your point deeply, and one of the things I've tried to do is work with our police union to say, can we make sure this is a yearly check-in? You know, can we put those funds forward? Can progressives not oppose us putting some more money into a police budget when it's going to the mental health of the guardians that we have out there? Because I think that's absolutely critical. I mean, try to be a police officer on the streets of LA for 20 years and see what the mental effect is on you too, let alone going to war where it's concentratedness in combat in a very serious and quick way. You're right. No human being cannot come out of that traumatized. And we want, we want superheroes who are able to come out of that and be more emotionally intelligent not vice versa. And then the last piece is training, training, training. That is so important. If we have to, and we've, we've started that in Los Angeles. We, we've been ahead of the curve. Contrary to what you hear here in Los Angeles, by the way, too, since I've been mayor, uh, we've reduced fatal police interactions by 85%. We're now 96th out of 100 per capita in the country. Something I'm very proud of. We did that with putting cameras on the first department to do that. De-escalation, implicit bias training. We have an award that's equal to the Medal of Valor for preservation of life. So when you're in those situations and you de-escalate, you could justified maybe even take someone's life. You didn't. We give you a medal for it. Um, all those things that change the culture of the training is absolutely critical. You know, and it's interesting. I'll never forget the study. It was done. I forget the professor at UCLA, who uh, has different police officers come and do a simulation, and he had, as he described it kind of a racist old-timer sergeant who had been there forever, uh, or more racist, kind of old-timer guy, who sees a person of color coming at him, blah, 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 and de-escalates it just by talking. And then you have the 25-year-old who's not on paper racist or anything like that, but is a 25-year-old young man. And somebody's coming at him, and boom, she shoots and kills the person. So sometimes it's about attitudes, sometimes about training, sometimes about where we are in our lives, because a 25-year-old young man has something to prove more than the old vet. And I've watched the difference in MTA, for instance. There's somebody who works on my security detail who, who uh, was doing overtime on MTA. And he said, whenever I see somebody who's had a mental health emergency, I've watched officer, young officers call for backup. And suddenly, there's six people stressing out somebody who may be going through a schizophrenic moment. Whereas he said, I always pull out a sandwich and say, you hungry? And suddenly, you're in a conversation with somebody. Yeah, I'm hungry. Mm. So, you know, so much of what we do, so much of what we think is about how much we're putting into a budget or not. We kind of think about sides. People with badges are things rather than human beings. People who are black or Latino are things, young men especially, rather than people with stories. And we have to rehumanize, retrain, recondition, and reinvest. And that will take resources. It's not just about cutting budgets. It's about reinvesting in that to make that happen. Thank you very much, Mr. Mayor. I really Thank appreciate you, Michael. Appreciate it all very much. Appreciate it very much.